Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Karen Siegel. Karen draws on her experience as a vocalist in her creation of innovative choral and vocal works. Her works are frequently performed by the New York City-based ensemble C4, the Choral Composer Conductor Collective, which she co-founded in 2005 and for which she continues to serve as one of the conductors. She was the winner of the 2018 Yale Glee Club Emerging Composers Competition and the Esoterics 2014-2015 Polyphonos Choral Composition Competition. Karen's choral works are featured on albums by the Choir of Trinity College Melbourne, Tonality, and C4. Her works are published by Sia Dot Music Publishing, self-published through Chestnut Oak Press, and distributed in the Justice Choir Songbook. Karen Siegel, welcome to Movable Dough. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me today. So when I was checking out your website, trying to learn about you, preparing for this mm-hmm. interview, I noticed a news update that you had posted that you called the 2021 season of music making an aleatoric year. And I was drawn to the appropriateness of that term that was applied to this year. And so I want to start there. Why, according to you, was this year aleatoric? Well, that's the music I've been writing. I've been focusing on composing for live remote performances this year, and I need to account for the latency of the internet. So I chose to embrace that latency and have that latency be part of the aesthetic for the works. So these works are all using a large amount of aleatoric technique, um, either almost entirely or um, in combination with other textures such as a solo so so when i saw the term aleatoric year i actually sort of thought beyond music and i was thinking just Mm -hmm. sort of about the pandemic and life in general how everything is sort of in flux and everything almost everything is depending on latency whether you're over (laughs) zoom or not and i don't know what what is your what's your perspective on life in general certainly certainly we've all had to become more comfortable with uncertainty this year and I think it's for for choral singers who are asked to sing in an aleatoric style and to make choices about when to come in that are different from the singers next to them there's a lot of discomfort when you work with a choir who's never done that before and overcoming that discomfort I think does have some similarities to overcoming the discomfort of not knowing what the next week will look like, what the next month will look like, what the next year will look like. Um, Going back to school for the second year during the (laughs) pandemic, what will that be like for our kids? You know, we just don't know. We don't know so much still. And I'm so much more comfortable with not knowing than I was a year ago. And the same way, the singers that I've worked with are more comfortable with not knowing when they're going to come in, not knowing exactly what they're going to sing and when, because they're using an element of improvisation um, in in performing the piece. So I think definitely you can draw you can draw a comparison between becoming comfortable with singing in aleatoric textures 
and the chance in our own lives that we're all becoming comfortable with. So where do you think we're heading next? Do you think this sort of aleatoric feel will continue or do you think we're moving into a more concrete or I don't know, what do you think? Talking about music or not? Because (laughs) so musically, I've actually have already started to pivot because I was asked to be flexible. I was hired to be flexible because people wanted to have works that could be in person, but they wanted the ability to pivot online if necessary. So Mm -hmm. I actually wrote a large work for the Astoria Choir during the pandemic that they were hoping to perform last June. And um, they have now pushed to June, 2022. And that's totally fine. They wanted the flexibility though, to try doing it online. And so I created a plan for them that would put it online. So everything had to be composed in a way that it could be performed in a live remote setting. As it is, I was always hoping for the in-person version, Right. but it really could go either way. So what we have now is a work that's site-specific for the Noguchi Gallery in Astoria, Queens, or Long Island City, just south of Astoria. And it's made for the, the singers to be spread out throughout the galleries. So it's really like a cross between a choral work and a sound installation. Interesting. And that's entirely in aleatoric textures. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, there's a small solo in one one movement well i'm calling the movements because it could be performed in a more traditional setting where there actually is an order so i do have an order that is preferred if you want to perform it that way but the ideal performance is that they're all simultaneously being performed in four different galleries of uh, a museum or some others this is for the noguchi gallery mm-hmm. the, sorry the noguchi museum but it could be performed in another space that has multiple rooms and you go back and forth so i'm taking this aleatoric texture and putting it in a three-dimensional world but there still is an appropriateness to using that texture because you're moving through the space and there's a flexibility to it and you can go in and out of that sound world just the way you move in and out of the visual world of a specific gallery. That's fabulous. So speaking of New York, I I saw that several of your degrees were earned at schools in New York City. Uh, Is that where you grew up? I grew up just outside of New York City on Long Island. So commuting distance. Okay. Well, not just outside, but (laughs) (laughs) outside. Well, now I live in Hoboken, which is just outside of New York City. Um, but yes, I grew up on Long Island near New York city. Okay. And so what sort of musical experiences were you having on Long Island? Were you in choir, doing piano? What were you doing? I did everything I could. I was the typical overextended teenager who who was doing her, um, math homework during Spanish class and all that, because I was always in some rehearsal. (laughs) I... (laughs) Um, so I went to a public school that had a really strong program. So I did chorus, orchestra, musical theater, opera. They had an opera program. I didn't know that was wow. unusual when I was in high school. Um, yeah, but I also had a lot of musical experience with my family. My parents aren't trained musicians, but they love to sing. And we all sing together. 
uh, my parents, my sister and I. So um, growing up, we'd be on car rides and we'd just burst into song. We'd sing their favorite songs, doo-wop, folk revival, Beatles, Rodgers and Hammerstein. So I learned to harmonize with them. That's... They're all, we're all upper voices. So I had to sing the alto line a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd all follow my dad when he modulates because he's kind of like the lead singer of our family singing group and he doesn't uh-huh. really realize when he modulates we all just follow him and <laughs> did your sister become a professional musician as well she did not she's a history no. teacher okay uh so when you were a teenager say a senior in high school or so what was your favorite musical artist or your favorite song what were you what were you listening to I was listening to the folk rock and folk women of the 90s. I listened to Indigo Girls a lot, Dar Williams, Ani DeFranco. I don't think I had one favorite song in particular, but um, a lot of those, especially Indigo Girls, I would listen to with my friends a lot, and I, I enjoyed those. Um, my parents also introduced me to Joan Baez, and I listened to her a lot. I was thinking of that recently, so I was talking with them about why, why didn't you ever play any Joni Mitchell? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, there are Joan households and Joni households, and I grew up in a Joan one. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I also kind of dabbled in singer-songwriter style composing when I was in high school. And that was that was my first foray into composing. You know, so were you doing the, you know, sitting with your guitar on, on your bed, writing yeah, songs I'm sort a- of thing? I'm a terrible guitarist. I like <laughs> to say I'm a I'm a two-year-old birthday party guitarist. If you if you need someone to to play those four five one songs for a two-year-old, I'm your person. There you go. <laughs> Anything beyond that, not so great. So um, yeah, my my guitar playing. I'm, I'm just so glad I don't have recordings of that. <laughs> so I wanted to quickly ask about your musical theater because I'm, I'm a big musical theater fan as well um when you were in high school did you have a role that you loved that you got or was there a dream role that you were hoping to get so um it was a little bit tricky because I as I said I was an overextended teenager I I I think they they knew better than to give me a lead in uh-huh. the musical because I was also doing the newspaper I was also doing two sports it was it was uh I, mean, I don't know how I got away with it I was always jumping in and out of rehearsals and practices and um and the newsroom and so that that balance meant that the director would be kind of um they would be very regretful if they made me the lead, but I did enjoy um, being the somewhere girl in West Side Story. That was uh-huh. perfect for me because I could come in and rehearse that and get my moment and <laughs> sing that song. And then I can go back to field hockey. There you go. I can't believe how much you were doing. That, that's a busy schedule. <laughs> so where in your musical journey did you decide composition would be the thing you would eventually pursue? That was um, later, I think, than a lot of my peers, because I I did not major in music in college, although I was spending a lot of time in rehearsals and was very active as a singer. Um, after college, it was my first year out of college. I was working at a job in conflict resolution education, and, and I liked my job. And if I the fact that I liked my job, but I wasn't creatively fulfilled, that was how I knew that I needed to find really something that that was creatively fulfilling so I was talking mm-hmm. to all my friends who were in these 
I mean, the, most of the jobs that people, these entry-level jobs people get right out of getting their undergrad, people usually complain about them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, usually if, if you're a smart person and you're just getting an entry-level job, you're going to have things to complain about. Um, but I didn't have anything to complain about at my job, but I wasn't happy. I was, I was really engaged in my work and I enjoyed many aspects of it, but I really just wanted to go home and compose. And so I, so I did that. I composed in the evenings and I started applying to graduate school. So that, that was the direction you chose. You started yeah, writing and then I, went to grad school for composition. For composition, yes. Okay. I considered some dual programs with voice, but I, I, I think it was a good choice for me to really focus on composing. Um, I mean, I enjoy singing, but I don't think I have the dedication to it that it takes to really, to really be a top-notch performer. Mm-hmm. My, my interest has always been more in being creative. Kind of like I played with a band when, um, I played cello in a band once in a, one summer, and they said to me, they said, you know, there's another cellist we've been working with, and he's really much better cellist than you but we like working with you because you're really creative. <laughs> so that that's kind of me. <laughs> my, my strength is more my creativity than my diligence at practicing. I, I get that. <laughs> so what was your biggest challenge in becoming a composer? What was the thing that you struggled with most? I think the practical aspects um, really, it took me a long time to make the connections that are necessary to get commissions, to build the relationships with conductors. They don't teach you that in grad school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've noticed that a lot of my colleagues who went to conservatory can merge from grad school with this network of performers and conductors who then feed off of each other for their careers and work together. And my experience at the CUNY Graduate Center wasn't so much like that because we were all in New York City and we were all engrossed in the musical life of New York City and the musical life at the school wasn't the focus in that same way. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I made friends and, but it, it just wasn't the same. I didn't make the type of connections with, with people outside of my department, with the performers as much as I, I observe happening at a lot of other schools. Sure. So what did you do to create those connections? Well, I was spending time in C4. (laughs) That was my main musical, um, my main performance outlet in the times. And that was certainly helpful in many ways for developing as a composer and developing as a conductor. And um, so there was that. But also, I think I just I just took time to realize I need to get out into the larger community to realize that I needed to really focus on choral music. Um, Cause when I was a, when I was a student, I stayed away from focusing on that in many ways because it was what I was already good at. So I needed to learn everything else, mm-hmm. but to being true to myself, my interest really is in vocal music. And I'm glad I know how to write for orchestra too, um, but I'm more likely to want to write for orchestra and voice uh-huh. than um, a, a full work just for orchestra. So, so doing that meant reaching out to 
compose to sorry to conductors and creating those relationships so i just i did that i started cold emailing people i started going to conferences i started being really proactive about making those connections awesome so let's talk about c4 uh the choral composers conductor collective uh so tell me more about when you started it how you started it, why you started it I, i'm really interested in this this project so First of all, I should, the why I started it, that's, it's a little, I feel like it's unfair for me to say I started it because I didn't decide one day I'm going to start C4. No, I was, I had the good luck to be invited to start it. (laughs) So it was Ian Moss's idea. And he said, Hey, what do you think about this? And I loved it. And he got a few other friends together and um, we had our first meeting and he said, I want to call it C4. I said, but you know, that's a plastic explosive. There was just the shoe bomber on an airplane recently before then. He said, oh, really? Perfect. Something to do with choral <laughs> music that's not boring. Let's do it. And that was the first time I was outvoted. It would not be the last. Um, so it just seemed like a perfect combination of my interests. And I wasn't yet singing in a choir and I was young. So I had lots of time and I didn't know any better about, I had no idea what it took to start an ensemble. So I said, sure, let's do it. (laughs) If I'd really known how much it entailed and how many years of my life I would spend emailing all these, (laughs) all my colleagues in the group, then um, I'm, I'm glad I didn't know what I was getting into because I'm so glad that I've been a part of this group. Um, and it's come a long way. It's now a real collective. It really was just a collective in name when we mm-hmm. started. Uh, it took a while for us to really get everyone involved and make everyone in the ensemble feel valued and heard. So now everyone in the ensemble is involved in decision making. We have full ensemble meetings. We have a leadership group too, which not everyone has to participate in, um, but we have the full ensemble meetings and important decisions get everyone's feedback and everyone is involved in some way in running the group. Everyone has to serve on a committee after their first season in the ensemble. So is everyone in the group, a conductor and composer or conductor or composer? How does that, how does that dynamic work? We, we need singers first and foremost. So if you are a singer who likes to sing contemporary music, you can be a great fit, um, but it does especially appeal to conductors and composers who are looking for those performing opportunities and those workshop opportunities. I know you've done some virtual stuff with C4 during the pandemic. Is it mm-hmm. is it mostly a virtual group or do you have people all over? Is it mostly New York centered or how? So what we've working? done over the pandemic after the very first, after the first one or two um, live streams, we opened it up to the broader C4 network, which is what we refer to um, for the network of choirs that have all been inspired by C4. Mm -hmm. So we now have an official C4 network organization bridging them all. And those choirs in LA and DC and um, Austin, Texas, Boston, they they were all invited to come join, as well as alumni of C4 to join us online because, well, they could, why not? And so what ended up happening was we had a a group that was a lot of the performers from Austin, the Inversion Ensemble, um, a couple from LA who really consistently wanted to be involved. So that, so C4 has not been doing its own 
performances this past year that were separate from that. But C4 okay. kind of hosted those C4 network performances. Gotcha. It was all on our, it's all on C4's channel and inviting C4's audience. So it was kind of like the all the other singers were guest artists joining us for that season. Gotcha. Um, but our normal seasons are entirely in person in New York. We did get one new singer. Um, through one of those ensembles who moved to New York during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> so he will be joining us in person, hopefully. Nice. But besides that, it will. I, we're, we're hoping to find a way to work with Austin's Inversion Ensemble this year. There's something being planned, I believe, for the June concert, perhaps involving them on stage in Austin and us on stage in New York, mm. um, using Jamulus to connect us. Yeah. We don't want to completely stop working with these people who we really enjoy working with. Yeah. Well, I look forward to that collaboration. So last question before we take a quick break. When you have downtime away from work, away from musicking, what sort of hobbies do you enjoy? When I have downtime away from work and my family, you mean, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really like to be outside and I'm always looking for ways to relax these days. (laughs) So that means I do yoga outside and meditate outside, go swimming in the summer. Um, Gardening is a big, um, a big, a big new thing for me that I love, love to do and love to read. That's awesome. I'm, I'm glad people love gardening. That's one of those things that stresses me out. So I'm glad there's people that really enjoy it. I've had those conversations. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will listen to some of Karen's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Karen Siegel. So let's start today with your piece, Here I Am. So Mm -hmm. the recording that we're about to hear was recorded in April 2020, as we were all grappling with the growing pandemic. Uh, so this is not a virtual choir, though. This is a, a live stream. So you were all yes. singing together from your own homes in real time. Mm-hmm. So what, as you're writing this, what sort of ideas and constraints did you play with while you were working on this? Well, I knew we had to be able to accept latency and, and incorporate that. So most of the texture is aleatoric. And it was actually a little bit small of a group for that style of writing. So we had to be very careful not to accidentally come in at the same time with someone else on our voice part, but we were able to do it just fine. Um, I also used a few brief moments of homophony and um, that it worked because of the words I was using that there were no hard consonants that would need to be together. Uh-huh. So I was mindful of mindful of that. Um, and also, you know, that, that's basically it. So I, those are the, the constraints were just, just the timing, just the latency there, because we were using Jamulus, there were really no constraints about uh, pitch or volume the way you would have in Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, in Zoom, the higher registers get cut off. So later on in the pandemic, when I was writing for choirs that I knew did not have access to Jamulus, then I had to be careful that I didn't write any notes that were too high. I don't think here I am goes very high, but that wasn't wasn't a consideration. So how, 
how do you practice a piece like this with, with a group? So you need to learn how to, how to control your own volume. So when you're, it, there's a combination of microphone technique and looking at your levels. So the, as a soprano, it's really, really easy to be too hot to, um, to overblow the microphone mm -hmm. and the results are not pleasant at all. So um, I would be further back most of the time from the microphone than say an alto would, because I was always a little more cautious about that. But then I have to make sure to lean into the microphone when I'm singing a lower register or talking. The first live stream was a little bit disastrous when I started talking because I had my level set for singing and my singing voice is soprano. My talking voice is not <laughs> so <laughs> people couldn't hear me <laughs> and we had to um i had to move the microphone much much closer for talking that was something i hadn't hadn't rehearsed hadn't thought about until we were live yeah so um those are some awkward moments in that first live stream <laughs> that unfortunately are recorded because it was live <laughs> um but also there is a levels meter in jamulus and it we didn't really have this down pat for that first performance of Here I Am, but as we did future performances, we got a lot better at it. Um, learning how to watch our levels constantly to make sure we are coming across at the volume we want to come across. So mm -hmm. we would do exercises where we're all trying to sing a chord at two bars or all trying to sing a chord at five bars. And they're, they're little lights that are green when you're singing in the, um, when it's in the lower range and then yellow when you're getting close to blowing the mic and then red would be, you're, you're too, you're too loud. Yeah. Um, so we would get used to that, making sure we never go into the red and that we're coming across at the volume we want to come across. Um, so that's something that also the conductor would think about, um, do I want to ask the group to sing further from the mic to get more of the room and the sound and just sing louder? Or do I want them to sing closer to the mic and sing softer? So those are both individual choices for the singer and they can be more color choices that the conductor might make or semiconductor as we started calling it because <laughs> we're joking about the fact that the conductor doesn't actually wave their arms. In the right. Here I Am video, I'm pointing to the corners yeah, of the Yeah, I noticed screen. that. Um, you know, moving your arms doesn't really help very much in that context because we're using Zoom, which has such high latency. Although I should say that as the group got Further along, um, I, I stopped being able to participate in the live streams in about September. I was involved in April through August, and then I had a lot going on, and they carried on without me. Um, and when I watched those live streams that they were doing in the winter of 2021 to 2022, I couldn't believe that they, sorry, 2020 to 2021, I couldn't believe that they were actually conducting. So um, they did learn how to follow that and just account for the visual latency. Uh-huh. That's cool. Well, we're going to take a moment here. We're going to listen to uh, C4's live stream world premiere of Here I Am.
All right, let's talk next about meditation. So I understand that this was also written to be live streamed, just like the last piece, but mm -hmm. this has been performed live as well. And so- Well, they're both live. So I would well, say in true. person In, in well. person, yes. in person is probably a better way. Uh, so you wrote, you write that this text grew out of a meditation you were using during the early days of the pandemic. Could mm -hmm. you talk more about writing this piece and the meaning the text has had to you? Sure. I mean, this, I, I started writing poetry um, during the pandemic in that, that spring when we were all kind of grappling with what is going on. <laughs> and I, there, there was a, a yoga teacher in my, my neighborhood who was offering these meditations that were family friendly, um, with her son. And so I, I did watched a few with my son and there was one in particular that I really liked. And so it, it started with may I, like this invitation to um, invitation to feel a certain way. And so that was the inspiration for this text that, that says, you know, may I be this way? May I, um, may I come to terms with uncertainty? One mm -hmm. of the lines. So that, that was, the type of feeling that was comforting to me, the type of sentiment that I wanted to be thinking about. And it was what I wanted to be singing right now. So when I created that piece, it was, it was healing for me, but also it felt really good to be giving that to other choirs. And I hit on something that we had in common, that we were all, looking for a peaceful acceptance of this situation that has been so hard to accept mm -hmm. and to find a way to to live gracefully through it um so i was i was really pleased to hear from the singers and the ensembles that i worked with that they that that resonated with them. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like you've taken a lot of those ideas into heart over this past year. Try. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're going to listen here to meditation performed by the Wheaton College Women's Chorale conducted by Mary Hopper.
All right, we're going to turn next to your piece, Why Do We Love Our Guns? So it took me a minute, actually, while listening to this, realize that you've only written it in two voice parts. You interweave mm-hmm. these voices so intricately, I felt like it was I was listening to a much more complicated voicing. Interesting. So the only text in the, is the title, Why Do We Love Our Guns? So I'm curious well, what you were trying more. to- Oh, I must have missed that. <laughs> Why do we love our guns more than our neighbors? More than our neighbors. I had I had missed that. That changes the perspective. So I'm I I'd love to know what you were uh, trying to do or say with this piece. I mean, I I think it's um I think the text is fairly self-explanatory in that it's um it's it's an anti-gun message um, voicing frustration with our society's our, our society's belief that guns are a solution that guns are essential that guns somehow make us better or safer um when guns kill i mean when i talk with friends in canada they don't have this problem they just don't have guns um, it's so, so that was the sentiment behind it. Um, and I wanted to just, to just express that. And had this, had this come on the heels of a, a particular moment? No, it was something I've been thinking about for a long time. Uh huh. It was, it was a long time coming. It wasn't a particular moment that I can remember trying to it was it wasn't a, a particular moment it was a long time coming and I was it, it was inspired specifically by something I read that actually framed framed the anti-gun sentiment or framed the gun control sentiment as a question of, of something to do with why do we have this affinity for mm-hmm. our guns? What is it about our society? Um, okay, so now I'm wondering if there was something specific that set it off. I, I feel like I have to look back at, there's just been so many mass shootings, so many tragic events um, so many police shootings. So, I mean, so many, I honestly don't remember which, which one. And I think that actually speaks to a lot that you, that, you know, was can't it, remember a specific one. Was it, no. was, was it Sandy Hook? I, I don't remember which one. It was just something that I've been thinking about for a long time that I wanted to be more, vocal in my music about the concepts about the social justice elements that were that I've been thinking about about I wanted to not be afraid to be political Mm -hmm. in my music that and this wasn't a commission this was just something I wanted to write and I thought well I'm just going to write this and see who if anyone wants to perform it, because this is something I have to write. And it was also um, musically, 
I wanted to write something that was a, an experiment in simplicity. I was starting, ironically, I wanted to be able to write for school choirs. I wanted to be able to write more accessible music um, for all these choirs who were saying, well, what do you have for me? And my mouth would drop and I'd say, uh, I don't really have any easy music. Um, so I knew I had to, I wanted to write stuff for them. Now, of course, this is terrible for school choirs because they can't do anything political. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that, but I just knew it was a step in the right direction to write a piece that, um, that was only in two parts. And I want to challenge myself to keep the, keep the vitality of my expression while making it technically simpler. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's a lot of interweaving but you never have any polyrhythm. There's never a duple versus triple, um, something that I've used a lot that is particularly challenging for um, younger or less experienced singers. So I, I, there's none of that in, in this piece, yet I wanted to keep that rhythmic vitality, the energy, and really, get gets that anger across mm -hmm. all right well we're going to take some time here and listen to why do we love our guns performed here by tonality with alexander lloyd blake artistic director
Last piece today is How She Could Not Drive. So this piece for SATV Choir and Fixed Audio. So in addition to the choir, you've included audio of highway sounds. I'd love you to talk about writing this piece and how you approach this text. Sure. Um, well, I would say about me that I enjoy capturing the feeling of anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think setting this text for me was all about um, capturing those, those feelings, those moments in it. And Lydia Davis's writing is just, she uses few words to create such a vivid image, um, both about what's, what the visual image is and the emotional picture. Mm -hmm. So that really inspired me. I wanted to, capture that emotional picture um so and and there's and the anxiety of the beginning contrasts with the floating middle section and then the driving intensity of the section it it builds into so i really focused on capturing the specific feelings in the text in the music um, so so what the what is it about the text that spoke to you? What is this song about? Well, it's about, it's about feeling like something is just too much for you. You know, what is the boundary? What it's what, what she can do, and what she can't do. She, she could not drive. There were too many clouds in the sky or rather if there were clouds, but not someone in the back seat and someone reading the newspaper and all the different things that make it harder in that situation for her to focus. So it's about that line. Where's that line between what you can handle and what you can't handle? And then how do you handle the things that you can't handle because you don't have any choice? Or there's that that borderline and she's riding that line she's driving mm -hmm. and she can't stop driving but yet she's aware of all the different things in the car that are making it making her more and more anxious and harder for her to focus on what she needs to do um so there was something about that that just really resonated with me and ironically, this was in a much easier time than I wrote it. <laughs> I didn't even have two kids yet. I was pregnant <laughs> with, in this video, you'll see I'm eight months pregnant. <laughs> um, but 
it was, oh, it's, this is a podcast. There's no video. So great. You don't see me eight months pregnant, but if you find it online then you will, you will find that, that I am quite pregnant at the time. So even pre pandemic, pre a lot of stuff going on in my life more currently, currently that it's more challenging than what I was dealing with back then, there was something about that, that honest discussion of anxiety mm-hmm. that drew me it was just acknowledge this she could not drive when this was happening but not when that was happening and the, just the the subtlety of it and her play with the the tweaks of these ideas the subtle tweaks of these ideas that have such significant differences on her emotional state sure I like that Okay, well, we are going to listen now to How She Could Not Drive, performed by C4, conducted by Timothy Brown.
So Karen, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Right now, I'm in the planning stages for a work called Despertar, which sets uh, poetry by Carlos Pintado, a Cuban-American poet who and writer um, who wrote this poem just for this project. So I'm really excited to be collaborating with him. I was introduced to Carlos by my mentor, Tanya Leon. She has worked with him and set his poetry. Um, this is the first time that I've collaborated with a writer in this way. When I set a work by Lydia Davis, I didn't talk to her before she wrote it. <laughs> I mean, right. I just found her poem, I loved it, or her story, I loved it, and I asked her if I could set it. Um, usually my collaborations have been like that, or when there's someone I know I wanna work with, I'll ask to look at their writing and choose one of their poems and ask if, if that if I have permission to set that but this started with I I would like to write a piece in Spanish um and I wanted to find someone who was writing in Spanish to work with and I um when Tanya recommended Carlos I read his work and it, it was just I loved it and um you know Tanya knows me and she she knows what types of things I'm drawn to so she she knew I would I would love his work too um so it was that match made by a matchmaker <laughs> <laughs> and um and I talked to him and felt like I'd known him for years um in our first conversation and we talked about you know what what we wanted to express in this moment and you know, I said, I, I really want to write something that is a bit uplifting. I feel the need for some uplift right now. And I think that's something that I'm not alone in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and he wrote, and we, we discussed a bit more about, you know, what are you interested in right now? And he, he wrote this beautiful poem um, that is... This is kind of hard, hard to describe, but despertar means to awaken or awakening. And um, it's, it's got a, a little bit of a tinge of sadness to it, but with an overarching optimism. And there's this beautiful, surreal imagery in it, including um, about the song of the stars in the sky. And I'm particularly excited about setting a, about creating a texture that's glimmering. Mm -hmm. Glimmering texture to illustrate that um, song of the stars of the sky. It's that's just, cool. So if my listeners want to learn more about you, where can they find you online? What's your website? KarenSiegel.com. And are you out there on social media as well? I am, but I don't know if I have all my tags memorized. So just go to my website and you can find all the links <laughs> or, or just search for me on Facebook or um, Instagram. What else is there? YouTube. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, listeners out there, if you are enjoying this season of Movable Dough, please consider supporting the show with a financial contribution for as little as 99 cents a month. Your contributions can make a huge impact on the quality of the show. Visit anchor.fm slash movable dough slash support or just 
fm slash movable dough and click the support button on that page. And I do thank you in advance. Well, Karen Siegel, it has been a joy to talk to you. Thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you so much, Steve. My guest today was composer Dr. Karen Siegel. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.